0: Uh, the, the flip side of that is what you say. So that's, that's where we want to be, for sure. Uh, let's pray together, and then we'll get into our study. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to study the Word. I pray that you would minister to our hearts. Give me grace to teach and uh, to do so clearly in a way that brings glory to you. So we commit our study to you now. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22, the lesson of the fig tree this morning. And uh, let's see if we got... Do we have the uh, outline? It'll come up here in a moment, hopefully. So, anyway, uh, we are working through Matthew. And uh, the theme here is uh, Christ the King. And uh, then as we work our way down, we are in chapters 21 through 23, the formal rejection of the King. That's the section we are in. In our study, we have come to the section that is commonly called the Passion Week uh, of Jesus Christ, the last week of His earthly ministry culminating in the crucifixion, of course followed by the resurrection, but the Passion itself uh, culminates in uh, the crucifixion. Well, at the start of this week, Christ officially presented Himself to the nation of Israel as her Messiah in what we commonly call the Triumphal Entry. However, even though it seemed like the crowd was actually receiving Christ for who he was, in truth, the nation as a whole merely recognized him as a prophet. And the city of Jerusalem itself, led by its religious leaders, did not really receive him at all. Well, for this reason, as Jesus came to the outskirts of Jerusalem, in that, what we call the triumphal entry, he wept over Jerusalem. He wept over the city as we find in Luke nineteen forty-one, And the reason he did so is because they did not know the time of their visitation. They didn't recognize who he was, and they didn't recognize the significance of what was really being presented to them. Well, in Matthew, Jesus then cleansed the temple, which is then followed thematically in our text today by the cursing of the fig tree. There are actually five key events recorded in Matthew 21 involving uh, Passion Week. However, they are not given in uh, chronological order. Uh, Note these five major events. Uh, They're all related to Passion Week, but Matthew's lining them up thematically for the emphasis that he wants to make. We see the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, and today the lesson of the fig tree. Of course, followed by conflict over Christ's authority and parables indicting Israel's Religious leaders. As I say, Matthew writes thematically to make the emphasis that he wants to make, while the parallel passage in Mark 11, we believe, presents what happened chronologically. And so, as we think about that, here's the actual chronology. Sunday, we have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He weeps over the city as he comes uh, to the edge of the city, and then he enters and inspects the temple. On Sunday, doesn't do anything else. he just checks it out, and then he returns back to Bethany. Monday, he shows up, or he leaves Bethany, he curses the fig tree, he then cleanses the temple. That's the right order. First, the cursing of the fig tree, then the cleansing of the temple. and then again, he returns to Bethany. Tuesday, again, coming back, uh, the disciples then see the withered tree on the return. To Jerusalem, As I say, Matthew, while presenting the same events, does not keep them in chronological order, but rather presents them in a thematic order to make a certain point. Now it's important to note the thematic context here because it points to the meaning of the lesson that is being brought across in relationship to the cursing of the fig tree. You see, the whole surrounding context is really about judgment on Israel because of the rejection of Jesus Christ, their Messiah, as led by the religious leaders. The cleansing of the temple was really an indictment of the religious leaders and their corrupting of the worship center. In Matthew, right after the cursing of the fig tree, we find the religious leaders confronting Jesus about his authority to do these things the things that he was doing at the temple, which they did not appreciate. So sandwiched right in the middle of conflict with these religious leaders who were leading the nation in rejection of Christ, right in the middle of this context, we have Jesus cursing this fig tree, which is representative of Israel. This is the context of this event. In context is King. Jesus, in his last week, really performed two acts signifying judgment. In that he cleansed the temple and he cursed the fig tree. This was contrary to Christ's normal ministry, which was not about judgment. At the second coming, he will come and it will be all about judgment. But at his first coming, he came presenting grace. John emphasizes this. John 1, 17, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse, uh, chapter 3, 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. However, the nation in the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah was now facing judgment because of it. And this is now what Christ is demonstrating in His cursing Of the fig tree. One commentator says, the theme of judgment on God's people is symbolically acted first and then strongly pressed home in three parables. And that is true. That is the emphasis in context. And that brings us to our text this morning. We pick it up Matthew 21 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Remember, Jesus is coming from Bethany, which was. about two miles just outside of Jerusalem. We don't know where he stayed at Bethany. Commonly, commentators suggest uh, his lodging was the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who were especially close friends. Others suggest that perhaps Jesus had spent a large part of the night in prayer, as he was known to do at times. But we really don't know. Uh, There is a little hint from the text that Jesus had bathed what is happening here in prayer as we will note as we go along here. But we really don't know for sure what was happening throughout the night, the night before this. Again, if the triumphal entry was on Sunday, then this would be Monday, as made clear by Mark. Uh, Note uh, what Mark says, Mark 11, 12. Now the next day, the next day, after the events of the triumphal entry, now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. That's where we are in, in our study in Matthew. And remember, according to the chronology of Mark, this is now the very same day that Jesus also cleansed the temple. So again, not to be too redundant, but the order of things. Sunday, the triumphal entry. He wept over Jerusalem. It's not good what he saw there in the inspection. And then on Monday, he cursed the fig tree and then he cleansed the temple. Well, in this context... We see an emphasis on the humanity of Christ. To begin with, he was hungry. As a human being, Jesus experienced everything we do as normal human beings, including being tempted, only he was without sin, and he never yielded to sin. Verse 19, And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately, the fig tree withered away. Now, some have struggled with the fact that Jesus initially didn't know that this fig tree didn't have any fruit on it. I mean, after all, he's approaching the tree to get... He's hungry. He wants some figs. And uh, the struggle for some is that uh, Jesus... why, Why didn't he just know that there was no fruit on it? After all, on other occasions, we see Jesus knowing the future... Or knowing what's in the hearts of people, which requires omniscience. So how can this be explained? Theologians often talk about uh, the kenosis, reality, spoken of in Philippians 2.7. Philippians 2.7, we have this. Uh, this is what it says. Speaking of Christ, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The word emptied is the, Greek word <clears throat> is the Greek word kenosis. Christ did not empty himself of his deity, but he did set aside the independent use of his divine attributes. Coming in the form of a servant, more literally slave, Greek doulos, Jesus, in his state of humility, at every point moved under the direction of God the Father. I mean, he was the perfect servant. In every way. And he was in the role of servant. Not, not directing his own path, but allowing the Father at every point as a human being to direct him. Notice Jesus said this in John five thirty: I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will. He wasn't seeking his own independent will. But the will of my Father who sent me. Again, he's doing everything at the direction of the Father. When the Father willed for Jesus to put his divine attribute of omniscience, all-knowing, on display, he did. But at other times, the Father's plan was that Jesus experienced the limitations of humanity in his state of humility. So sometimes Jesus exercised all power in doing the miraculous, and sometimes he did not. It all depended on what the will of the Father was in any given situation. And Jesus was 100% submissive to do exactly what the will of the Father was at every step of the way in his state of humility. So he was here as a servant simply doing the will of the Father at every step. Well, as such, Jesus is the most amazing and intriguing person who has ever lived. He was God in a human body and yet in a state of humility. And in this state, uh, the exercise of his divine attributes was limited according to his mission of humility and dependence upon the Father. In the Bible, there are three great touchstone uh, mysteries involving the connection of deity and humanity that really are inscrutably profound. Number one, there is the reality of Holy Scripture, which is a production made in combination of deity and humanity. God inspired it, but He used human authorship in the process. The scriptures, therefore, are the very word of God, but yet also there are words of human authors who use their own style. And so forth. That's pretty profound. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For prophecy never came by the will of man. It doesn't originate with man. It's not like, well, I'm, I'm going to will scripture. No. Never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke. They spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Number two is salvation. God moves in salvation and is the author of salvation from A to Z. So it's all of grace. And all the glory goes to him alone. And yet it also involves the element of human response and human responsibility. This combination, too, ultimately has mystery in the mix. Notice uh, in Matthew, as we have already studied, chapter 11... All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. That's all God. Verse 27, all God. I mean, how do you know? How do you know God? How do you know the Son? Uh, Well, the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. It's all Jesus there. But verse 28, come to me all, come to me all you who labor in a heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's human responsibility. You need to come. And then number three, the truth of the incarnation. Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person. On the one hand, we often see his divinity on display. On the other hand, we often see his humanity on display. And exactly how this combination of deity and humanity works involves mystery that is profound beyond what we can completely comprehend. 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It's really talking about the person of Christ. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seed of angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Well, in the earthly life of Christ, we see splashes of divinity and we see splashes of humanity all under the direction of the Father who was bringing to pass the fulfillment of all the messianic path- prophecies in perfect balance and harmony. Well, Jesus as the God-man is the perfect mediator, the perfect go-between. On the one hand, he perfectly represents God. On the other hand, he perfectly represents mankind, thus being able to bring us into relationship with God because he perfectly represents both sides. As our great high priest, priests represent people to God, as our great high priest, he can sympathize with our human struggles because as being human, he has gone through it. This is what the, te- the word says in Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows the struggle. He knows what we go through as human beings. He can sympathize. Was in all points tempted as we are, but yet he didn't sin. The conclusion, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He can sympathize, he knows, he cares, and he can help. Here in our study this morning, we see the humanity of Jesus on display. In the fact that he was hungry, and in the fact that initially he did not realize that there was no fruit on this fig tree. You can say, well, by my supernatural knowledge, I can tell there's no, there's no fruit over there. No, no, he was limited in, in this case. Jesus was hungry, and seeing this fig tree, he came to it, obviously with the desire to eat some figs, but instead found nothing on it but leaves. Jesus then said to the fig tree, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Well, what was this all about? I mean, why is Jesus picking on this poor little tree? I mean, was Jesus having a bad morning, taking it out on this tree? Was he hangry? Meaning easily angered because of being in a state of hungry? Well, that would make Jesus very human. But remember, he was completely without sin. The answer is seen in considering the context. Most, most Bible scholars believe that the fig tree here is a symbol for the fruitless Israel. And Jesus cursing it at this point is symbolic of the judgment coming upon Israel because of it. The fruitlessness of Israel is seen in the fact that they had rejected Jesus, their Messiah. Wycliffe Bible Commentary says, although there is no statement that the situation should be regarded as parabolic, that seems to be the only reasonable explanation of the incident, for trees have no moral responsibility. It provided a graphic sequel to the earlier parable in Luke 136 through 9 regarding the Jewish nation unfruitful despite every advantage. Stanley 2 says, If the fig tree is taken to represent Israel, then the cursing of the tree represents the judgment of the nation for its false profession. So what is happening in context here is sandwiched between Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and him cleansing the temple both which were indicative of judgment on Israel's hypocritical unfruitfulness. So just to reinforce the point here, here's the context. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, then he cursed the fig tree, then he cleansed the temple. Again, Toussaint says, Matthew skillfully introduces the record of Israel's rejection of Jesus with the account of the withering fig tree. So again, the whole surrounding context argues this was not just an impetuous act of frustration or anger, but rather a symbolic object lesson illustrating that judgment is now being pronounced against Israel. The theme of judgment is first acted out symbolically in the cursing of the fig tree, representing Israel, which is then strongly pressed home by three parables of judgment as seen at the end of Matthew 21 and the beginning of Matthew twenty two now the fig tree is often representative of Israel in the scriptures, and withered figs as judgment. interestingly enough, in Luke thirteen, Jesus gave a parable, as, as I aforementioned about a fig tree that for three <coughs> excuse me, that for three years was unresponsive. So what do we find there in Luke thirteen uh, he spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? Uh, MacArthur says, Our Lord makes no specific comparison of that three years to the three years of his ministry, but it was three years after Jesus first presented himself to Israel as her Messiah that the people declared their final rejection of him by putting him to death. So there is a a corollary there, although we want to not take it further than what Jesus specifically said. Well, fig trees were a staple fruit in Israel. Fig trees normally bore two crops each year, but if it didn't freeze, some of the fruit could remain on the tree almost all year long until overtaken by the next crop. Now, fig trees can grow up to 20 feet high and be almost that wide in terms of the shade provided. Uh, so note, uh, here's, a, here's a picture of a fig tree. You know, it's not, I don't think it's 20 feet high yet here, but you can see how it, it grows wide as well as tall. So, um, you know, they can be pretty good size. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 8, 7 and 8, the promises that God would bring the Jews into a good land quote, full of fig trees, among other things. Lots of things are mentioned there, but fig trees is mentioned. When Jesus met Nathaniel, he told him that he had seen him under the fig tree, perhaps having his quiet time. I don't know. And in the kingdom, we have this promise, the coming kingdom. What's going to define it. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. It's kind of like, you know, it's a, it's a place of blessing fellowship. Normally a fig tree sprouted fruit before the leaves filled out. And uh, as we think about the fig tree, and we think about the coming kingdom promise here, just as the fig tree is a symbol of blessing and prosperity, the cursing of it is a symbol of judgment. How wonderful and blessed it was to have healthy fig trees, So normally, if you saw a leafy tree, you would expect to find fruit on it because first came the leaves and then the fruit. So if you found a leafy one, you would think, oh, there's probably fruit there. And this is what Jesus was expecting to find. The outward manifestation of the leaves would leave one to believe that it should have some figs. And so it was with Israel. They had an outward form of leafy, if you will, religiosity. But there was no real fruit. The nation as a whole was barren, as evidenced in the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, as evidenced in the totally corrupt spiritual leadership. Well, the consequence was that Jesus pronounced a severe curse upon them, saying, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And then the text says, immediately the fig tree withered away. Now this was most remarkable, because this is the only judgment, the only miracle of judgment found in Christ's ministry. It's interesting to study the ministry of Christ. You don't find him, you know, going around cursing things. This, this is it. This is the only occasion he specifically cursed rather than blessed. That he destroyed rather than restored. You can say to those wicked Pharisees, you're blind. Your, your history, just a puff of smoke. He, he wasn't doing that. Well, because this is so exceptional, the entire context of what is happening is telling. The context, again, was one of rejection of the Messiah, the climax on the cross, which is now just a few days away. In that context, out of character for his ministry, Christ performed a symbolic miracle of cursing. Signifying a curse being placed upon Israel, and we don't have to wonder whether it was a curse or not because the parallel in Mark eleven twenty one, Peter remembering said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Now in the Old Testament, God very strongly and specifically told His people Israel that they would be blessed for obedience, and they would be cursed for disobedience. Deuteronomy twenty eight, rejection of their Messiah was the highest form of disobedience. And therefore, we would expect the curses to follow. Now, God is a very patient God. In grace, he reached out to Israel for three long years, climaxing in the triumphal entry. But now, in view of their rejection of him, Christ uncharacteristically pronounced a curse upon them as symbolically seen in the cursing of the fig tree. Now, when it says immediately the fig tree withered, this indicates that immediately it began to die. And according to Mark eleven twenty, 20, the next morning, which would have been Tuesday morning, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. So immediately it began to wither from the bottom up. But the disciples didn't really notice it until the next morning. Now, this speaks of the severe consequences for the hypocritical fruitlessness of Israel, which climax again in the rejection of Christ. Living things are expected to bear fruit. In Matthew, fruit is indicative of life and having a living relationship with God. Matthew 718 says every good tree bears good fruit. In the parable of the soils, all the genuine good ground bears some level of fruit. As seen in Matthew 13. Fruit is consistently the manifestation of true salvation. Now, the fig tree here was really guilty of false advertising, so to speak. You see, it had the appearance of reality, but there was no fruit. And so it was with Israel. They had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, as Paul says in Romans 10. Israel claimed to be spiritual. But in reality, were spiritually barren and unproductive. The leaves on the fig tree spoke of profession, but there was no fruit for God. This amounts to sheer hypocrisy. And God hates hypocrisy, as Jesus stressed to the religious leaders. When we get to Matthew 23, we'll see that sevenfold rebuking of the Pharisees as hypocrites. MacArthur says empty religion almost invariably has many outward trappings in the form of clerical garments, vestments, ornate vessels, involved rituals, and other such things. It also typically is characterized by repetitious prayers and so forth. In other words, empty religion continues to have an outward form or show of godliness, but it's all show and no substance. This, by the way, is characteristic of last days apostate Christianity, as seen in 2 Timothy 3 and 4. And this is what is characterized in Judaism here now at the time of Christ. That is the point being made in the cleansing of the temple. What's going on here is a sham. You know, they're acting like we're celebrating Passover and we got to, you know, people have to have their lambs. And so we're selling. No, it was a den of thieves. As someone has well said, profession without fruit is an abomination. And yet, incredibly, evangelicalism has developed a whole system of theology called easy believism that says you can be a Christian and yet never bear fruit. I frankly think that is the doctrine of demons. We are not saved by fruit, but if we are saved, the expectation is that there will be some level of fruit. No fruit, no salvation. Certainly, fruit begins in the heart. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If you are truly a regenerate person, you truly have the Holy Spirit living in you. That's going to bear some fruit. God disciplines all of His children, Hebrews twelve, to build holiness into their lives. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, the Jews with one voice cried out, "His blood be on us and our ch- and on our children." And it has been. Israel as a whole has remained spiritually unfruitful, barren, and unproductive, and will continue to be so until they finally come to recognize Jesus for who He is as their divine Messiah. Now, there's always a remnant. God always has a remnant. But the nation as a whole is characterized by apostasy. The sovereignty of God continues to preserve Israel, but His blessing is not upon them. They are still in rebellion, yet because of his covenant promises, Israel still has a future, and being back in the land in the latter days is in perfect accord with last day's prophecy, as seen in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Well, the linking of the symbolic miracle of judgment, the cursing of the fig tree, and the cleansing of the temple, which immediately followed, implies God's imminent punishment of Israel, which would result in the destruction of the temple, the very center Jewish society. Well, in just a few years, the Romans came and demolished the temple and crushed the Jewish state as a political entity. And then the Jews were scattered throughout the known world for almost 200,000 years. Thus, in the cursing of the fig tree, it seems evident that Jesus was really setting aside that generation, which would never see fruit and would not see the kingdom. And this continues to be in place until Israel will come to repentance. Well, verse 20 says, And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? Again, according to the chronology of Mark, this actually took place on Tuesday. So here's the chronology. Sunday, the triumphal entry. Monday, the fig tree is cursed. The temple cleansed. And then Tuesday, as they are coming back into the city again, the disciples see the withered fig tree. Immediately, when Jesus cursed the tree, it began to dry up, but... But the next day, really a span of a few hours, the tree was completely withered up, so much so that the disciples marveled and said, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? I mean, when a tree dies, normally it takes quite a while for it to go through the dying process, to be completely withered up. I mean, it can take years for a tree to die. Never do they die in one day and are completely shriveled up the next day. I mean, this was shocking. Even though the disciples had seen the Lord perform so many miracles, yet this was new, and the rapidity of it caused them to be astonished. And at this point, the disciples were not asking the why, but rather how. They understood the why as being because it wasn't bearing fruit, but they probably didn't really understand the symbolism of it until later. But their question at this point was on how. How did this happen? I mean, the day before, even after Jesus cursed it, it still just probably looked normal, although it began to die immediately from the bottom up. The next day, when they come back, that thing is completely shriveled up. Wow! How, How did this happen? Well, obviously, it was a miracle. But Jesus took advantage of this situation to make it a teachable moment. And since they didn't ask why, but rather how, Jesus changed direction and deals with the source of the power, which is God, and the means of tapping into that power, faith and prayer. Verse 21, 22. So Jesus answered and said to them. They're asking how, right? They're asking how. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, But also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Wow. When Jesus says assuredly, it's a strong assertion. The Greek word is really amen. It's often translated as truly. When Christ wants to strongly affirm something, he often uses this word. And here Jesus makes the issue that of faith and prayer. Note that Jesus connects his emphasis on faith and prayer to what was done to the fig tree. Saying, if you have faith, you'll be able to do what was done to the fig tree. This would perhaps suggest that what Jesus had done to the fig tree had been bathed in prayer. This is how, again, it's not spelled out specifically, but that may be the implication in the flow of the context, The connecting point between the cursing of the fig tree and how it happened is linked to Christ's emphasis on believing prayer. Now, faith is not faith in faith. It's not faith in yourself. It's not faith in your dreams, your desires, your hopes, or your aspirations. James says this in James 4:3, you ask and do not receive. What's the problem? You're praying, nothing's happening. What's the problem? Well, because you ask amiss. Your prayers are off target. Why? Why? That you may spend it on your pleasures. Selfish praying. There's a wrong kind of praying and God doesn't answer those prayers. Prayer is not an abstract idea or a vague sentiment. It's not a feeling. Faith alone does nothing. I mean, you can have faith in your pet fish. Fine. What's that going to do for you? You have all the faith in the world in that fish. Not going to do anything for you unless you want to eat it or something. But anyway, maybe you want to give thanks for your object. Sorry, we're way off our track here. (laughs) Faith must have an object. And biblical faith has its object as God and His Word. Study that. Study the Bible. You'll find faith is always linked to God and His Word. It trusts God to do what He says, what He promises. Biblically, faith is always connected to God and His Word. Now people say, well, I just have faith that this is going to happen. Well, the question is, on what basis? Do you have a promise from God for that? If not, you have no basis. You have a human feeling or sentiment but that might simply be faith in your feelings, which is completely unfounded. Jesus promises that if you have faith and don't doubt, then you will not only be able to do what was done to the fig tree, but also cause a mountain to be cast into the sea. Now that gives us a little pause. I mean, when's the last time you saw people casting mountains into the sea? I mean, even the, even the big faith healers. I mean, the, when, does, when does this happen? Casting a mountain into the sea has never in the history of the world ever happened. You say, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> okay, I'm open. It hasn't happened. Jesus himself never did this, the apostles never did this. No one has ever literally done this. So this causes us to think that Jesus is here speaking metaphorically. The great rabbis in Judaism were considered to be solvers of great problems and therefore called rooters up of mountains. To move mountains became synonymous in Judaism with being able to do seemingly the impossible. Jesus regularly used this metaphor in the sense of seeing God do the impossible. In Matthew seventeen twenty, we see Jesus using this very same language. Notice in, in Matthew 17, the disciples came to Jesus' private and said, why could we not cast it out? They're having a problem casting out this, this demon. Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now the issue in question here is not a literal moving of a mountain, but an impossible spiritual situation related to casting out a demon. That's the issue here. It's a spiritual issue. Here Jesus was telling them that God can accomplish impossible things. Humanly impossible things. Through faith. We have the same emphasis here in chapter 21. Jesus is simply telling them that they will be able to see impossible things happen on the basis of faith that does not doubt. Now Jesus was thinking a lot about faith and prayer at this time, during the final days and hours of his earthly ministry, at the Last Supper, which is just a couple of days out here now, two, three days out, Jesus told the disciples this. John 14, 12, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And that's another verse. People want to camp on say, we can do greater things than Jesus. Let me just pop your bubble just a little bit. You are not Jesus. And you are not going to do greater sign miracles than Jesus did. We should note the qualifiers here in the context very carefully. If I've done anything in my ministry, I hope it's to emphasize we need to study the scriptures in context. You can make the Bible say anything you want to if you take it out of context, as all the cults do. In the immediate context of John 14... Jesus is talking about how he put the Father on display in response to Philip's request, Show us the Father! This is what Jesus had been doing for three years. But now he is telling them that they, corporately as a whole group, will put the Father on display in a greater sense, in terms of volume and extent, than that which he had done individually. You see, Jesus, as one person, put the Father on display as he was led by the Spirit perfectly. But he was just one person in one place at one time, never going more than 200 miles in his ministry. But now he was going back to the Father, and once there he would send the Spirit, who would then come to live in all of his disciples. They would put the Father on display as they walked in the Spirit, wherever they went, to the furthest parts of the earth. The net effect of that would be a greater display of the Father in terms of sheer volume than what Jesus himself had personally done all by himself. Jesus was not talking about doing greater sign miracles. He did say, well, what Jesus raised the dead, I'm going to do better, more. Really? No, you're missing it. Uh, that is not the context of what Jesus was saying. So it's important always to understand what Jesus is saying in context. Furthermore, Jesus went on to make this qualifier. Right in that same context, Jesus goes on to say, Matthew 14, 13, 14, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything, anything in my name, I will do it. To ask in Jesus' name is to ask for His sake and for His glory. This kind of praying is all about what Jesus wants. It's not about what I selfishly want. Jesus-centered kinds of prayers are always answered as they align with the Father's will. The problem is that our prayers often don't align with Jesus and what truly brings Him glory. We don't even know how to pray that way sometimes. All we know is I've got. What about God? Maybe God's going to use the very opposite of what you're thinking. Maybe He's going to use a hard time to bring glory to Himself instead of just a good time. Lord, prosperity, prosperity, prosperity. Maybe God says, "You know, what? I, I want you to go without once in a while, like Paul did." Spirit-filled praying that aligns with God, what Jude calls praying in the Holy Spirit, is to pray as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, "Your will be done on earth." When what you want is truly what God wants, His will, then you have reached the point of powerful praying. John said this, 1 John 5, 14, 15. Now, this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything, anything, according to His will, He hears us. And we know that if He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we asked of Him. No matter the impossible thing, the size of the mountain, if we look to God in faith to remove it, it will happen. Again, we're not talking about literal mountains, but rather impossible obstacles in the spiritual realm, like casting out demons, for example. The illustration there in Matthew 17. Verse 22. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. What is the condition for seeing God move metaphorical mountains? Which is to say, do impossible things. The key is believing prayer. That aligns with the plan, purpose, and will of God. You see, in prayer, the whole goal is to get God's will done on earth and not my will approved in heaven. You see? You see, that's the whole idea. It's all about God's agenda. It's all about what He wants to do, not what you want to do. I'm sorry, we've got a whole man centered way of praying these days. It's all self centered, not God centered. It's about my plans, not His plans. There is a whole context here related to what's happening with Israel, as I have shared. The cursing of the fig tree had nothing to do with Christ's personal whim or self-agenda detached from the Father's plan. No, he was moving in sync with God's program for Israel. That's the context. When we pray in keeping with God's program, he moves mountains. The major thing in Christ's ministry was souls. His whole reason in coming was to to seek and to save that which was lost. To properly understand what Christ is saying, we must understand he's talking about prayer in relation to people and God's plan for his people. The emphasis in Christ's teaching was praying in relationship to people. Really not stuff. It's not that it never enters in, but the major mega thing is God's plan in relationship to people. Again, on the night before his crucifixion in the upper room, here's where Christ's mind was in relationship to the issue of prayer and in relationship to fruit bearing. And they're connected. Notice what he says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Why, what, 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 why, why? Well, what's my purpose for you guys? Well, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And how do you bear fruit? Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Fruit happens through prayer, believing prayer. If you don't pray, don't expect fruit. If you don't pray in faith, don't expect fruit. God works fruit through believing prayer. This is the the method that God has ordained. He can do it without us, but He wants to use us. What kind of prayers do we see in the early church in the book of Acts? As they took the instructions of Christ and they began to apply it to history as history is unfolding now in the book of Acts, what do we see? What kind of model of prayer do we see in the book of Acts? Well, to begin with, we see them in prayer in Acts chapter 1. We need to study that sometime. Right, right, We studied that in Sunday school, there's more of you here. But anyway, a uh, little joke there. Uh, we begin them, we see them begin with prayer in Acts chapter 1 as they awaited the coming of the Spirit, and then he came with power in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 4, they were praying for boldness to speak the word, and the place was shaken. And they went out and spoke the word with boldness. In Acts 13, we see they were praying. And the spirit called Barnabas and Saul to missions work. And Paul and Silas were praying in prison in Acts 16. And the lordship of Christ was suddenly on display as the prison was shaken to its foundations. Resulting in the conversion of the jailer and his family. This is the point. If you examine believing prayer closely in the New Testament, you will see it is predominantly soul-oriented. The great goal is to win souls. That is being fruitful. It's a relationship to a people. But here is the deal that is an impossible mountain-moving endeavor. In terms of people being saved or people being spiritually changed, we can't do it. Christ said without him we can do nothing. Paul said his message was not of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5, Paul said, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. A.C. Dixon said this, When we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, I would like to say upon God in prayer, we get what God can do. Again, I think the emphasis Christ is making is in relationship to believing prayer. And it's in relation to God's plan, purposes, and programs. And what God is doing in the world today, above all else, is building His church. Powerful praying is about God's program of church building, winning souls, seeing them grow, and their spiritual well-being. That is what New Testament praying is largely all about. Study the prayers of the New Testament. Study the prayers of the Apostle Paul. Is he praying for all kinds of physical things? No, it's the spiritual well-being of people. He's asking prayer that he'd open his mouth and speak as he ought to speak. Yes, sometimes he makes a little P.S. and remember my chains. But for the most part, it's overwhelmingly about spiritual things. We're kind of lopsided. We make the emphasis on all these physical needs and and this. And not to belittle that. I mean, John does say he's praying that their their soul uh, would prosper even as they, or that they would prosper uh, physically even as they do in terms of their soul. So, I mean, that is part of it. But it's when we pray about the issue of souls that we see God move mountains. Making disciples is an impossible task. We can't do it. You know how hard human hearts are? It's a God thing. Only God can break through to a human heart. I can't do it. You can't do it. We're not sufficient for anything, as Paul would say. he's, He's about the new covenant. The new covenant all about the Holy Spirit. As Paul said, I planted Apollos water and we were doing our thing, but God gave the increase. And how does God do this? Well, he does it through believing prayer. I mean, he could do it any way he wants to, but he has chosen to do it through believing prayer. This is God's method. Sometimes kind of people poo-poo. You spend all, all that time in prayer. Maybe I ought to really be doing something. Yeah, yeah, what, 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 what? Maybe you got that backwards. You ought to really pray and then something would happen. Jesus, right here, puts his finger on Israel's problem. They were no longer people of prayer, generally speaking, of course. There's always exceptions. But as a nation as a whole, they were spiritually barren. Israel had turned her temple from a place of prayer into a den of thieves. No powerful praying going on there. No emphasis on souls there. The nation was not focused on faith. They didn't believe the clear truth about Jesus the Messiah. In contrast, Jesus tells his disciples that the key to seeing God work impossible things, miraculous things, is believing prayer. This is what God uses to bring people to himself, to change people. God is no longer doing sign miracles today because that was unique to Christ and the apostles. However, he is doing spiritual miracles in the hearts and lives of people in answer to believing prayer. And this is where we come in. You know, I've seen many situations through the years. I'm thinking about one particular situation where a person left the church, very upset with me. And uh, they were not sin. And, uh, you know, I put that person on my prayer list. And and I can't tell you how many times I've seen this happen. But one day, this person called me and said, I've come to repentance. I've gotten right with the Lord. They were again on track. Only God can do this. Only He can change people. Only He can move spiritual mountains and He does it in answer to believing prayer. Only God can really change a hardened heart. But as we pray, we see God work as only He can do. And yet here too, we are in the mystery zone of God's working and human responsibility. You see, God doesn't force people, but He works in answer to prayer. Want to see God move mountains through believing prayer? Jesus said, Surely I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. If a mountain moving endeavor is in accordance with the will of God, and you ask in believing prayer, it will happen. I did like what David Jeremiah said at this point. He said, Nowhere in the scripture does anyone cast a mountain into the sea through a faith filled prayer. Why not? Well, because God has never willed anyone to pray such a thing. Now, while that is true physically, I do think metaphorically speaking, God does remove mountains through believing prayer. I mean, we really need to tap into this. What does Paul say in Ephesians 3? Now to him who is able, he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power. The works... In us, of all things. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. John MacArthur says, God does not build his church or build up his people by better ideas, programs, methods, although such things can have a place. God promises to truly reveal his power only through faithful believers who persist in prayer, seeking only his will. Warren Wiersbe says, Jesus used this event to teach his disciples a practical lesson about faith and prayer. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer. The nation was to be a believing people. But both of these essentials were missing. We too must beware of the peril of fruitlessness. In believing prayer, we don't just have a blank check. We have a blank check with this qualifier. Is Jesus' name on it? It's all about Jesus. Jesus. If he can sign off on it, it will happen. And as we pray accordingly, we will see God do impossible things in keeping with his will for his glory. God help us to be people of believing prayer. And then watch what God does. Let's stand and have our closing song.